name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. I think it was my cousin Gay who first had the idea of looking into the old cedar chest. My grandmother's cedar chest was known to all of her grandchildren as the place where all of our mementos, all of our treasures went, and more still. Anytime we wrote a Mother's Day card or mailed her a picture of our first day of school in kindergarten or a letter from camp or a graduation invitation, we knew that it eventually ended up in mommy's cedar chest. The thing is that we, her grandchildren, all eight of us, had no idea what was really in the cedar chest because we had never actually looked inside. It was kind of a sacred place and we just never had the opportunity or perhaps the nerve to look into something so personal until that night. The night after her funeral, as we all gathered in the parlor of that great antebellum family home in Eufaula, Alabama, that we called the Big House. Our parents had long ago gone to bed, and all of us grandchildren, now adults ourselves, stayed up drinking wine, and talking and remembering all the things from our childhood growing up with this remarkable, wonderful grandmother. This remarkable woman who, at age six, had been invited by her father to accompany her to have lunch with George Washington Carver at Tuskegee to talk over his studies in peanut and cotton oil production for the purpose of beginning a company. So there we all were in that room gathered after that funeral. Maybe it was the occasion, maybe the wine, but soon we all got around to looking across the room and there it was, Mommy's cedar chest. We approached it slowly. Like archaeologists, we slowly opened the top and began to gently take things out of the chest. It was absolutely fascinating. A kind of combination time capsule and catch-all from the past 70 or so odd years of a lifetime. Among the miscellaneous of sewing patches and threads, Sunday school announcement and baby shoes, we found a newspaper from VJ Day, 1945, Japan Quits in Bold Black. Her college scrapbook from Judson Women's College in the 1920s. In one picture she is dancing what appears to be the Charleston. A baseball from my grandfather's college team at Mercer, signed by all his 1922 teammates four peacock feathers. You follow a high school football program from 19, 
49 with a picture of my mother as a cheerleader. A Valentine's Day card from my brother Jeff when he was four years old. A letter from me from my first week as a freshman at Swanee, 1974. But then we found it. An old yellowed envelope, so ancient that it almost disintegrated in our hands. We could hardly open it. There was a more recent note in my grandmother's handwriting. It said, old letter from my great-grandmother to great-grandfather while dating. How incredible. This would be James and Sarah Nunn, the very people whose portraits looked over us that very moment. We looked up. Grandma Nunn was on the wall over us, and she stared through the foyer into the library, to the next room where her husband's portrait, Grandpa Nunn, stared back. On her portrait, we all knew and could see, she famously had a miniature of his portrait around her neck, as was the custom then. So this was a letter from her to him. My cousin Gay began reading. My dearest James, it began, I'm certainly relieved to hear that your concerns over having an undramatic and unremarkable summer have been greatly assuaged, if I am to believe the reports that I hear. Hmm, something's not right here. I believe this is a bit of Victorian sarcasm. It continued. I'm certain, of course that my reports must surely be in great error. For I have heard it said by more than one assiduous witness that it seems that a certain young man of your demeanor and countenance has been seen on more than one occasion in the back of a fashionable buggy not unlike your own, in the presence of a certain young lady of our mutual acquaintance, though perhaps somewhat lately more mutual on your part than mine. We all looked up from the letter. She's not happy about this. It continued. As I have been away these past few weeks, I must in all candor say that, we turn to the next page, no page two. No, page two. Nothing. It's lost. We looked around frantically for page two. All through the cedar chest, in books, everywhere. Nothing. Could not be found. What was she going to say to him? Would she forgive him in the end? You know, sitting around that circle, you could say that we all had a kind of a vested interest in this relationship working out. How did it ever end up that her portrait was one day painted and around her neck a miniature of his portrait? What had happened between them after that letter? What was the real story? Well, we will probably never know the details, but we do know this. Somehow they worked it out. Somehow they chose to work through that conflict and to heal that relationship. Somehow in the crucible of talking together, reconciliation, forgiveness, hanging in there with one another, 
somehow God's Holy Spirit moved beneath and between and among this young couple, and the miracle of reconciliation happened, which is to say, the miracle of healing happened. We usually think of the phenomenon of healing as what happens to our bodily selves, as when we are healed from bodily sickness or infirmities. Three years ago, I broke my ankle, slipped on some ice, and down I went. A skilled doctor operated and set the bone in the right place again. And later, a skilled physical therapist shepherded the gradual healing of that fracture to grow, to recreate healthy bone and tissue. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That is an extension of the original miracle, so to speak, of the creation of that ankle bone and tissue in the first place. Perhaps it's even an extension of the creation of all life itself. And it took both the miracle of recreation within the bone and the compassionate shepherding from without for healing to take place. Jesus spends a great deal of his time and energy in healing the sick, as we see in today's gospel. Specifically, as Will Willimon puts it so beautifully, Jesus heals those who are excluded from the government-approved medical care system, which is to say, the poor. Jesus is all they have. Jesus shepherds their healing. For Jesus, healing the poor who are sick is a direct sign of the coming of the kingdom. Not just because in the kingdom the last shall be first and the first shall be last, but because in a deeper sense, all of humanity needs healing. Baptism tells us that we are, all of us, God's beloved children. No power on earth or heaven can separate us from that love. And that love lifts us up to be who we are essentially. To essentially be good and holy people who have it in us to love as we are loved by God. We have it in us to be whole and happy and healthy. We have it in us to heal and to shepherd one another in healing. That is what baptism tells us, but life tells us that we are what we used to call fallen, but now more accurately perhaps estranged, estranged from that essence of who we really are. As John Westerhoff describes that paradox, baptism begins the spiritual journey to become who we already are, to become who we already are. And on that journey, because we are creatures, we suffer. We are vulnerable to sickness and disease as we are vulnerable to making unwise choices. We get sick, we make wrong steps, we break ankles, we ride in fashionable buggies with people who are not our beloved, we suffer. 
And we are all, as the old hymn puts it, standing in the need of prayer. We all need healing. Of course, there are times in life when this becomes more apparent than others. Times when we find ourselves in the middle of our lives, like Dante, lost in a forest, not knowing our way. Or as Robert Frost puts it, times when life is too much like a pathless wood, where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from the twigs having lashed upon it open. What human being doesn't at some point realize that we all need healing from the basic journey of life itself, especially when suddenly the horizon is closer. So whether we call it prayer or even even healing outright, we are all of us standing in the need of prayer. And so that is what we do. We pray. We seek and ask and knock, as Jesus has taught us, with persistence. You see the prayer list before you, and we pray for healing. Healing for those we love, for ourselves, for the world. God knows the world needs it. How do we do that prayer? How do we, like Jesus, shepherd that healing that is recreating the world of the kingdom? I think Mary Oliver is right. We find that kind of healing prayer first by paying attention. Paying attention in her wonderful poem to her single grasshopper in her hand. And that is what prompts her now famous deep, deep question. What do you want to do with your one wild, precious life? It is a beautiful question that clarifies even as it heals. What do you want to do with your one wild, precious life? And perhaps it will help us remember in that holy paying of attention all of those smaller, smallest of times in our lives when others have shepherded our healing. Times when we have been forgiven When those around us have loved us, put up with us, taught us, and just been there for us. Hundreds, thousands of times, 70 times, seven times in our lives when we have been healed by simply letting things go, letting things just slide by gracefully into the past, been forgiven. That's what heals the human heart. That's what we are called to notice, to pay attention to, to give thanks for. And one thing that my great-great-grandmother and my great-great-grandfather taught me is that it is those tiniest of healings that have happened to us and perhaps that we have contributed to those tiniest acts of reconciliation of forgiveness, of patience, of forbearance, of persistence, of presence. Those tiny acts of love, they not only affect and transform the present day, they transform the future in ways that we can never 
imagine. I remember that last Thanksgiving that we ever had in that house with all of us talking, arguing, laughing over who knows what. I remember looking up at that portrait, that portrait of Grandma Nunn, and I almost thought that I saw a little smile on her face, a smile looking across to her beloved, glad that healing happened, glad perhaps on our behalf, glad she took him back. Amen.